This is Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. Tonight, we're giving equal time to the Democratic candidates for state senator in District 9. Here in Utah, a super red state, we're used to seeing races where the Republican primary decides a district's fate. But in this district, there are no Republican candidates, so the Democratic primary winner will in all likelihood be the one who represents District 9. The district was redrawn with the new census numbers and takes in the majority of Salt Lake City east of Redwood Road, so kind of uber blue. Coming up, you're going to hear first from Senator Derek Kitchen and then Dr. Jen Plum. First, rallies and resources. You can find this list online at krcl.org. Just click on the Community Affairs tab. At the top, we've got the festival rundown. So this weekend, of course, Friday and Saturday, it's the 2022 Utah Blues Festival at the Gallivan Center. June 11th, Festival of Colors Salt Lake City at the Hare Krishna Temple in Salt Lake. And of course, this weekend as well, it is the Ogden Arts Festival 11th and 12th at Union Station, 2501 Wall Avenue in Ogden. Coming up this Saturday, a lot of things happening. It is the DACA Renewal Workshop with the Mexican Consulate in Salt Lake City. And that is not just for Mexican nationals. So if you need help with your DACA renewal, it's from 9 to 2 at the Consulate, 660 South 200 East, Suite 300, Salt Lake City. And you can call 801-521-8502 extension 110, 111, or 112 for more details. All that info is on the Rallies and Resources page at krcl.org. There's also a soil collection ceremony. We've talked about this one earlier this week. It's with Sema Hadithi African American Heritage and Cultural Foundation. It's from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at a couple different locations where lynchings actually happened in our state. Sema Hadithi is working with the Equal Justice Initiative of Alabama to collect soil at these sites here in Utah. And then the soil will be sent to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery. One o'clock West High on Saturday, you can meet up with the March for Our Lives Salt Lake City folks. They're marching again to address gun violence from West High up to the Utah State Capitol. They expect to arrive at the Capitol around 1.30 and then have some more speeches. You can get more details for March for Our Lives Salt Lake City on the Rallies and Resources page of krcl.org. I want to talk a bit about the Great Salt Lake. As you may have heard, KRCL and Radioactive in particular, part of the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, a solutions journalism initiative that partners news, education, and media organizations like KRCL to help keep you informed about the plight of the Great Salt Lake and what can be done to make a difference before it's too late. All of the stories are being collected at greatsaltlakenews.org. We're doing some fun things, though, and All of us trying to highlight what's happening, like the June full moon walk happening Tuesday, June 14th at the Great Salt Lake State Park and Marina, 9.45 p.m. actually. You can join a park ranger for an evening stroll across the expanse of Silver Sands Beach. All of their walks have a different topic and begin right after sunset. You get to watch the moon rise, cast its reflections over the Great Salt Lake, perhaps give you a new perspective and appreciation for this dwindling beauty in our midst. Your dogs are welcome, but must be on a leash. We have a link on rallies and resources where you can sign up. That's the June full moon walk at the Great Salt Lake on Tuesday. Speaking of the Great Salt Lake, we're going to start sharing Lake Effect, a podcast with memories and recollections of the lake out of Utah Public Radio. Here we go. 
My name is Molly Blakowski. I'm a PhD student at Utah State University's Department of Watershed Sciences. I'm from Detroit, so I've been surrounded by Great Lakes my entire life. And so when I moved to Utah to study Great Salt Lake, I thought I knew what I was getting into, but I was wrong. On my first day of fieldwork, my colleague Jeff Perel and Dewey and I got caught in a dust storm, which we had to walk through for hours. Your eyes are watering, you're coughing. We had our fair share of pretty crazy days out doing field work, collecting samples from our dust monitoring sites on what used to be covered by Farmington Bay. It was really tough field work, some of the toughest I've ever done. But when I really think about the effects Great Salt Lake has had on me, my mind goes back to where I'm from, to Michigan, because I've seen firsthand what can happen to the well-being of entire communities when really poor water management decisions are made. It's now been eight years since the water crisis in Flint began, and there are still hundreds of residents today who don't have access to clean drinking water. I'll be really clear that there are lots of differences between these two places and these two scenarios. I just bring it up because when I'm out on the dry lake bed, miles from any other people, and I'm just left with my thoughts, I can't help but wonder, what's the worst case scenario here? Pollutants that have been accumulating in the lake bottom sediments for over a century now are potentially able to leave the lake and they may be blowing into natural ecosystems, agricultural areas, and cities and towns that are close to the lake. And we're still trying to figure out how much dust dispersed along the Wasatch Front is from Great Salt Lake in comparison to other sources. Maybe there's not enough Great Salt Lake dust coming our way to cause health problems right now when the vast majority of the lake bed is still covered by a protective crust. But if lake levels stay low like this and the crust continues to weather away, what are things gonna be like five, 10 years from now? Especially if the population keeps growing, if the drought keeps getting worse, if we don't implement dust control measures, or if regulations aren't put in place to restore lake levels. I don't wanna look back and regret not doing more to protect the lake. It's not too late for me and the many other friends of Great Salt Lake to act big. Act now and do what we can to preserve Great Salt Lake and all of the amazing ecosystem services it offers. This is Lake Effect from the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. Stay salty, Utah. And that's Lake Effect from the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. You can read all of our stories by the nearly two dozen organizations coming together to report on solutions about the plight of the Great Salt Lake at greatsaltlakenews.org. And that's Rallies and Resources. When we come back, Senator Derek Kitchen, who wants to represent District 9. And he brought a special guest with him. Support for KRCL comes from Solidarity for Justice, presenting the Summer of Color Juneteenth Festival, Sunday, June 19th, noon to 6 p.m. at 102 South, 600 West, Salt Lake City. All are welcome at this community event commemorating the 1865 Emancipation of Enslaved African Americans. More information at Juneteenth, Utah, sfj.org. Rock Camp SLC's first summer showcase is just around the corner on Saturday, June 18th, 2 p.m. at the Commonwealth Room. Twelve bands perform original songs created in just five days. More details at rockcampslc.org. Rock Camper Showcase just around the corner. Another great nonprofit in our community. 
I'm Laura Jones, and now for our conversation with the candidates who wish to represent District 9 in the Utah State Senate. Earlier today, I had the chance to talk with Senator Derek Kitchen. Here's that conversation. Hey, Laura, great to be with you. Thanks for coming down. Uh, Senate District 9 race heating up as we head towards the primary on January, excuse me, on June 28th. Just got my ballot in the mail. So I'm guessing politicians like yourself are now kind of in the home stretch. That's right. We've got about two and a half weeks. Ballots are in mailboxes right now. And so we're just making sure that people know that it's time to vote. And you also brought with you someone who's been in town. Uh, you want to introduce your, your special guest? I'd love to. Yeah. So I uh, invited a friend of mine, uh, Jim Obergefell. I'm still trying to learn how to say you it got correctly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, somebody who I have drawn a lot of inspiration from over the last uh, seven years or so, uh, named plaintiff in the landmark uh, federal lawsuit that legalized same-sex marriage for all LGBTQ people in the United States back in 2015. Jim. Hi, Jim. Thanks for coming down. Thanks, Laura. I'm glad to be here. You're also a candidate for the Ohio House, so a fellow politician. That is correct. Uh, And earlier this week, the two of you were on the steps of Utah's Capitol um, talking about the state of our union. And in particular, Derek, you issued a call to uh, officially, you opened a bill file officially to repeal the one man, one woman definition of marriage in Utah. That's right. So we could talk about the reason maybe in a moment, but the reality here is that in Utah code, as well as in our state constitution, uh, we have explicit prohibitions on acknowledging, respecting, and providing benefits and protections to same-sex couples. And so, you know, we don't know what to expect out of the Supreme Court. We cannot control what will come out of the United States Supreme Court. We are anticipating a pretty significant ruling on reproductive health care for women in the, in the United States. And uh, the leaked decision is incredibly concerning for the future of all of our fundamental rights, including same-sex marriage. So I've, I'm working on a piece of legislation that seeks to ensure that same-sex couples in the state of Utah will have a place and protected by the state of Utah, no matter what happens with the Supreme Court. What's the status in Ohio or where you're running on this issue? Is it the same fight? It, it is the same fight. Ohio still has on the books its state constitutional amendment, Defense of Marriage Act. So much like many other states in, in our nation, if marriage equality should happen to be overturned in the Supreme Court, well, all of these states have these laws still on the books. And that would immediately mean those states could say, well, we no longer recognize or allow same-sex marriage in our states. And that's harmful, not just to the couples who are involved, the people who want to get married, but it's incredibly harmful to LGBTQ plus families. What do you say to the critics, Jim and Derek, who say, Roe v. Wade hasn't been repealed yet. It's narrowly tailored in certain minds. This this isn't possible. We've crossed this bridge. Jim. Well, I wish I could believe that. You know, if you look at polling, you know, 71% of Americans support marriage equality. And that's fantastic. That's good to, that's good to see. But the leaked ruling on Roe versus Wade, the rationale used in that ruling clearly sets the stage for opponents of marriage equality, opponents of LGBTQ plus equality, and really opponents of much of the civil rights progress we've made in this nation to file suit to attempt to overturn that. And it's that language around 
fundamental rights have to have a long history and tradition in our nation. Well, marriage equality certainly doesn't. Interracial marriage certainly doesn't. That's only been a fundamental right since 1967. So I think we should be concerned about our fundamental rights. And as Derek likes to say, and I love this, Derek, I'm going to use this, when one fundamental right is challenged and overturned and lost, that puts every other fundamental right at risk. Derek, your thoughts, especially as you talk about this with your colleagues. Well, I would like to believe that marriage equality is settled law and that we shouldn't be worried. But the reality is that we have a very conservative uh, Supreme Court and a base of far-right folks in this country that are seeking to take away rights from people, including reproductive health care. And if you look at the comments on Twitter or online, it's pretty obvious that they are coming after marriage equality next. But even if it is settled law and the Supreme Court never takes a case on overturning Obergefell, the reality is that the books, Utah's constitution, still explicitly discriminates against uh, same-sex couples. State code, throughout state code, explicitly discriminates against same-sex couples. So even if it is settled law, don't you think it's time that we clean up our code to match the reality of our families in the state of Utah? Interesting rhetorical question there. (laughs) Derek, I'm thinking of the current backlash against the LGBTQ community among um, uh, school board folks, some colleagues up at the state house. And I, I, I kind of, at the age I am, keep saying to myself, I thought we already fought this fight. And you know the old question about each generation must secure liberty for itself. What do you think is going on here in the state of Utah, one of the most conservative states in the union? I mean, our legislature is certainly conservative, but the rank and file people in the state of Utah are not nearly as conservative as the legislature likes to portray. I mean, certainly they have gerrymandered themselves into perpetual power here. And so that is an issue that we've got to deal with in the state of Utah. But you got to keep in mind, Utah is not only the fastest growing state, we happen to be the youngest state in the entire country. If you look at the recent census data, that obviously maps that out, but it shows that we're diversifying faster than ever before. Our politics do not actually match what our legislature is going after. And so, you know, my assessment here is that you have um, a far right wing of the Republican Party that is certainly taking over. um, And that's something that we've got to fight from from within, uh, both at the legislature, but also in community organizing terms. Um, And yeah, we do have a lot of folks out there running for school board that are deeply troubling in terms of keeping our children safe and advocating for things that um, prevent us from having an open and honest conversation about the reality of our lives. All right, you're up for re-election. The primary is June 28th. You face a rematch with your challenger from 2018, Dr. Jen Plum. So why should Utah Democrats uh, put you back into the general election? Well, I appreciate the question, Laura. You know, I believe that representation matters. Like I said, Utah's the youngest state in the country. I'm the only LGBTQ person in the entire Utah legislature. Of all 104 legislators, I'm the only queer person up there. I believe representation matters. In addition to that, I'm the only millennial in the entire Senate right? If you look at the demographics of our state, like I said, it's very young. I believe representation matters. And so when it comes to climate change, when it comes to housing affordability, um, you know, I, I, my, my job is to go up there and fight for Utahns. And so I would like an opportunity to keep doing that. I have a long track record of being successful in fighting for things that matter to me and to this community. And so I'd like another opportunity to keep doing that. 
You have received some criticism talking about millennials and age, that your opponent is older than you. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, just because I'm acknowledging that I'm the only millennial, I think that, <laughs> you know, my opponent has taken uh, offense to that. But it's the fact of the matter. You know, I do believe representation matters. I know what it's like to rent in this community. I know what it's like to breathe bad air. I know what it's like to have to take mass transit to work sometimes. You know, these are issues that matter to me. Well, let's knock those down. Housing, transportation, air quality. What do you want to do on those? What can you do? As uh, we said earlier, it's a conservative state, supermajority Republican. It's hard to get anything uh, going at the state house as a Democrat. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to reject that premise, honestly, Laura. I think that there is an opportunity for us to get things done. Look at Spencer Cox, our governor. In his budget proposal this last year, he put forward $127 million to address the permanent supportive housing deficit in our county. The legislature knocked that in half, right? And so we, we're not addressing the problems when it comes to housing and housing affordability that we know we can address. We had a billion-dollar surplus this last year. So, you know, there is an opportunity for us to do some big things when it comes to housing. And you're seeing Republicans come on, come on board, right? When it comes to air quality, we're growing really fast. We know that we can do it right when it comes to development, building housing closer together. Densification is really important. Funding mass transit. Salt Lake City did free fare February. Incredible results, right? With gas prices spiking, going through the roof, we should make transit free for everybody permanently, right? When it comes to air quality, that's obviously a transportation issue, but we also got to look to saving our great Salt Lake. We saw the New York Times article this week. Obviously, here in, in Salt Lake, we've been talking about saving the Great Lake for a long time, but they it's now... A, equated it with a nuclear, environmental nuclear bomb. Yeah, but so it's now the eyes of the nation are starting to look at this, the fact that this is a really localized experience with climate change, and we've got to take action right now. I want to dig into a little bit of housing and homelessness. You've been, you, you were elected to the city council in what was it, 2015, 16? 2015. Thank you. And uh, on to the state house. So you've had um, a, an elected perch from which to watch that, not to mention you've lived in the city for a long time. Your business is in the city, in Central City. What, uh, it's just a general question, what can be done? What is it that we're not doing that is so obvious to you we should be doing? So housing is a big umbrella, right? You have deeply affordable housing for people who have been living in the rough, sleeping on the streets, experiencing homelessness, right? That requires permanent supportive housing, deeply affordable housing with all of the wraparound services, mental and behavioral health care, substance use treatment, job training, all of those things, right? That's one aspect of housing affordability. But then you look at the fact that we have a really young population and nobody can afford to purchase property. Nobody can afford to get in a, into a position of home ownership. So we are leaving a huge chunk of our population out of the mix, right? So we have a 2% vacancy rate in Salt Lake County. It's the lowest it's ever been. 2%. It means that we have really low supply and high demand. This is basic economics, right? So we've got to build more housing for people of all walks of life, right? In Salt Lake City, for example, you're seeing a lot of construction going up. Most of it is studio and one bedroom. No wonder we're losing our families. We don't have two, three, and four mm. bedroom apartments. We're not going to have families. So school district is looking at closing schools because there's not enough kids in the school, Salt Lake City school district. That's correct. And so these are really concerning for me over the long haul. Um, but with that 2% vacancy rate, what that that tells me is that we've got to build more housing. Hmm. And a, affordable housing. I feel like we've always had our, our incentives upside down. Um, and, you know, over the course of the pandemic, when you issue stimulus checks to the people and watch what happened, the bad things, the sky didn't fall, <laughs> you know, investing in people is worthwhile 
for the common good? Well, I believe that housing is a human right. You know, we had an experiment back in 2013 here in Salt Lake known as Housing First, where we paired homeless veterans with a safe, stable environment to live. And what we found is that when you give somebody who's been experiencing homelessness the stability of a house, so much already comes back into focus. They start to qualify for benefits that they've already had access to, right? They have an address by which they can apply for new benefits or apply for a job. Uh, Estranged family members start to come back into the picture. Housing is so critical for the stability of our entire community. So I believe housing is a fundamental human right that we should be focusing on. With that vacancy rate that I mentioned and our billion-dollar surplus that the Mm, Utah legislature has, we need to make sure that everybody has a place to sleep at night. The legislature seems to want to tell cities what and counties what they can and can't do with their zoning. And uh, I was I'm mindful of a, an overlay map I saw recently about the city of Atlanta. And I'd like to see one for Salt Lake. And it was comparing um, rental units, residential rental units and Airbnb. And it was just saturated with Airbnb. There's not enough place places to rent in Atlanta. And I, I would Venture to guess it's pretty similar here. What can you do at the state level um, to deal with that? Because it seems like legislature looks at it, well, that's just a business opportunity and people are just availing themselves of the right uh, of property rights and the right to make money. So the question is about short-term rentals? Yeah, well, an Airbnb, that whole tension there in our state as we continue to have a high demand and low vacancy. Yeah, I mean, I I think that there's an opportunity for us to permit uh, short-term rentals, right? Mm -hmm. So business license sort of process. Because they're not paying the the hotel transient tax as illegal Airbnbs. So I think that there's an opportunity. I mean, it will add to the cost of an Airbnb, but Mm -hmm. certainly it is having a direct impact in our affordable housing stock. So Mm -hmm. I think that there's some policy uh, mechanisms that we can put into place there. I also think that if we're going to start permitting, perhaps that there's a licensing fee that could go directly into an affordable housing trust fund. Mm -hmm. We already have a couple of those tools that are active right now. So those are two examples. Uh, But you're right. You're talking about the traditional tension of state versus local control, right? And uh, the Utah legislature loves to get into the business of local municipalities and tell them what's up and what they can and can't do, can can and can't do. And they cry freedom when the feds do it to the state. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of hypocrisy going on there, but uh, that's not what this show is about <laughs> here today. <laughs> but uh, we should make that one a show because there's a lot to be said there. But at the end of the day, like I said, with that 2% vacancy rate, you have one third of the state population living right here in Salt Lake, Salt Lake County, uh, and we're growing really fast. We're set to double uh, mm-hmm. in size over the next couple of decades. We have a lot of work work to do. So when it comes to the city and the state tension, I do believe that there are municipalities out there that are not being cooperative when it comes to the development of housing. Salt Lake City is not one of them. Salt Lake City has always been a leader on the development of housing and housing affordability. But there are other municipalities along the Wasatch Front that are sticking to their guns when it comes to only wanting single family homes. You know, the white picket fence with a massive yard. We have limited space, and that's actually not the way people want to be living anymore anyway. So I think that there is a zoning issue that we need to be discussing when it comes to regional development. Okay, regional development. You you said the word guns, and this is going to be like a whiplash sequitur, but um, let's talk about guns in the state of Utah. And uh, as we record this, June 11th is a mass day of protest for March for Our Lives. The students uh, who formed their movement out of uh, the Florida shooting, uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting, and here we are again. Um, Over COVID, I kind of saw March for Our Lives kind of drift away in Utah because 
kids weren't in school, where they were uh, congregating and, and getting active in, in civics. And now a re-energized March for Our Lives is happening in Utah. There'll be a march um, on Saturday with March for Our Lives Salt Lake City. I believe there's one in Provo as well. How do you talk about this? I mean, I don't think it's a secret that Democrats favor gun control. How do you talk about this with your Republican uh, colleagues about what's got to happen, what's got to shift? Well, we're going to continue to see uh, gun violence and mass shootings until we actually have the courage as a nation to take action. So I'm putting a lot of pressure on our federal delegation to meaningfully move forward on nationwide gun control mechanisms that will have an impact in keeping people safe. Uh, I was disappointed to see our federal delegation, all of the members of the House, Utah's House, uh, decide not to join Democrats in the conversation. John Curtis was on the radio this morning talking about his disappointment that they didn't do enough to, you know, appease Republicans. So I'm I'm disappointed Republicans are not at the table or coming to the table. Uh, But here locally, you know, I have a bill open that will raise the age uh, by which you can procure a firearm from 18 to 21 years old. It's a very simple piece of legislation. We recently raised the age by which you can purchase tobacco from 19 to 21. You can't even buy alcohol until you're 21. We have an understanding as a society that when something is not healthy, not good, not safe, that we have reasonable guardrails around them, right? So what I have found with my be- my uh, bill, my piece of legislation raising the age to 21, is a lot of support from even Second Amendment go- gun-toting Republicans. I could show you an email here in a moment, uh, maybe after we hang up, from a-, a gentleman who runs a tactical shooting range, right, uh, who is so proud to support meaningful, reasonable legislation uh, that will keep people safe, like raising the age to 21. And so you're seeing a lot of people out there that are deeply uh, in with the gun culture, uh, realizing that something needs to be done. And they've got to come to the table on reasonable re- legislation. I will also say, Laura, that we have a, a history of, of, of uh, hunting culture here in the state of Utah and out west. And I think that hunters are fed up with the far right using hunting culture as a shield for gun manufacturers. So it's time for us to start taking action. And I believe that common sense legislation is certainly within the realm of possibility here. Well, you got Salt Lake City Police Chief Mike Brown supporting this now after a recent spate of uh, gun violence in the capital city. And you said this this uh, individual who's emailed you. What about your Republican peers? Are you hearing from them? even off the record supporting sensible reform? They have to come to the table, Laura. I mean, we cannot keep letting our children die at school. We can't let our parents go to the grocery store without fear of them being shot up. We can't even go to church, right? Republicans have to come to the table. I mean, I'm going to keep pushing forward on common sense legislation, and if they choose not to support it, that's on them, not me. Well, closing pitch here. Thank you for bringing Mr. Obergefell with you. Thank you for uh, sitting with us while we have this conversation about Derek's election, Jim. No, happy to be here and really thrilled to be out here in support of Derek and everything that he's doing for the state of Utah. All right, let's hear your closing pitch, the the Democratic primary voters. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. You know, I've been serving this community as a city council member and now as a state senator for the last seven years. It's my honor to represent this community and to go up to the Capitol every single day and to fight for the things that matter to us. Housing affordability, air quality, investments in transit and transportation. I know what it's like to live into in this community. I know what it's like to try to work and build a business in this community. I know what it's like to try to keep a business alive during a pandemic. 
We want to make sure that we have common sense legislation that matches our democratic values. And you can count on me to go up to the Capitol every single day and to fight for the things that matter to us. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Senator Derek Kitchen, who is now in District 9. When we come back, we'll talk to the other candidate in this race to be the Democratic nominee, Dr. Jen Plum, to get us from here to there. A little of D-Light to remind you all to fill out your ballots and send them in. It's Radioactive on KRCL. The Utah Department of Health and Human Services has information and steps for parents affected by the infant formula recall and shortage, now available in 28 languages in addition to English and Spanish. Visit health.utah.gov for details. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and their Loves Diversity Initiative. Mark Miller Subaru is a proud community partner of Project Rainbow, spreading love together this Utah Pride Month. Learn more at projectrainbowutah.org or markmillersubaru.com. Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7, it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman and crew. Thursday Night Psych Out with DJ Mike Walton at 8 p.m. The Dirty Boulevard with Gianni at 10.30. Rich checks in at 1 a.m. with I Don't Sound Like Nobody. Jolene's Illustrated Blues at 3. And then, of course, John Florence gets your Friday started with a brand new day at 6 a.m. If you want to catch up on any of our shows, you can listen on demand to the last two weeks through the on-demand tab under programs at krcl.org. And now for the other Democratic challenger in Utah Senate District 9. As with Senator Derek Kitchen, I recorded this conversation earlier today with Dr. Jen Plum. Here we go. Jen Plum, welcome to Radioactive. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. How's the campaign trail been? It is hectic and crazy and really great. You get out there peopling again after a couple of years of not interacting. It's been really, really good. Well, thanks for coming in. We talked with the incumbent earlier yeah. this hour, and now you, the challenger. It's a rematch, right? Yeah. You, you two Although, you know, it's it. interesting because in this district, with the way it moved, there's uh-huh. folks who actually don't have an incumbent because yeah. there were folks rec- represented by Senator Iwamoto. So there's certain moved from parts two of this to nine. Yep, so exactly. Folks should have started receiving ballots in the mail. This week. This they week. came starting on Monday. And yeah. they have a choice to make about who will represent them. Uh, is, there, is there a Republican challenger at all? There so this is, is it. You know, a lot of people in the state complain that um, if you don't vote in the Republican primary, you don't have a say. But guess what, folks? If you don't vote in the Democratic primary, you don't have a say in District 9 either. So, And that is the biggest portion of Salt Lake City. So wow. this, you know, is truly an opportunity for folks, especially that live here in town, to really have an impact mm-hmm. and use their voice. Their vote is their voice. So why do you want the job? So we started to talk, you mentioned about a rematch of sorts, uh-huh. which, you know, 2018, I did, in fact, run for this office after Senator DeBacchus was no longer running. And it was 
a really great learning experience. It was also something that got me thinking about, well, what are my priorities policy-wise? What are my hopes for our legislative kind of body to be doing for the state? And it gave me a new set of, I think, lenses to be watching the next four years to see if the results that I was hoping for were happening. And I didn't see them happening and or I saw them going the opposite direction from what I wanted, for example, House Bill 11 and our transgender youth playing sports bill. And so when the opportunity came up again, this is a new district. This has been kind of redefined boundaries. It's a new population of folks. And I thought, well, I really do feel like people deserve the opportunity to decide who best represents them. And not only that, who can get results for them. So for me, that's what this race is about, is that I feel really over the last seven years, I've demonstrated that I can work in that very challenging space and get results done. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. It's not that you go in and you compromise your principles and you back down. It's that you go and you figure out how to build bridges and make collaborations and make things happen because there are too many pressing issues, too many crucial issues to me to have District 9 over the last 10 years essentially have no results coming out of it. Um, And so that's kind of my big motivator. Do you feel that that's because of the the incumbent or the fact that we're a supermajority red state, to be fair to Democrats that currently hold office? Sure. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, I mentioned before, this district has had two senators with the way the boundaries moved. So parts of the district represented by Senator Kitchen, parts of the district represented by Senator Iwamoto, Janie passed 11 of 12 bills in this last session. That's a 92% pass rate. And these were not um, little froofy bills. These were big bills. These were water banking. These were stopping the um, speeding, you know, the race. I don't know. I wish I could think of the name of it at the moment. It's escaping me. But the folks essentially who are really jeopardizing communities with their drag racing in their cars, especially communities on the west side, These were heavy lift bills. These um, took a lot of work and took year-round kind of working with colleagues to make it happen. So when people say, well, it's a super majority against you, you can't get stuff done, that's really not what I see. And that's also not what I've experienced. The the incumbent, and I asked him about this, Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's been some messaging that I read you interpreted as ageist toward you. You think that's the case, that there's a that going on? You know, labels are funny, aren't yeah. they? Uh-huh. Any of the labels that are put upon us or that we put upon ourselves, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a 51-year-old. Senator Kitchen is a 33-year-old. I don't know that I see our ages that different, yeah. Lee. Um, I also, though, I'm not comfortable saying that because of my blankness, anything, right? And so I know that some of our representatives and senators do see those messages as ageist, as you say, well, you're too old to lead. You're too old to represent us. You're too old. So for me, um, when folks ask about, you know, what about when people bring up age? I I don't like to bring up age because it feels very ageist to me. I think it's more about who can get you results and who can actually go to bat for these issues. Well, let's talk about the issues that you wish to prioritize. Reading on your website, I see that mental health and substance abuse for folks that don't know, um, candidate Plum is also Dr. Plum in the ER, pediatrician at Primary Children's and also founder of Utah Naloxone, those kits that can save a life in the midst of an overdose. So what is it you want to achieve with mental health and substance abuse if elected? Well, I think the biggest priority for me is centered around the opioid settlement 
funding that's coming to Utah. Millions coming Millions. here. 266 as it stands now, maybe going up to 288. I think that will continue growing as there are further culprits identified and and This is run the Purdue the Pharma system. settlement. Purdue, there's one called McKesson, there's one that's uh, there's a it's not only the manufacturers but it's also the distributors, so the, the folks pharmacy. who knew that they were sending millions of pills into areas and that it was far greater than what the reasonable demand would have been. Yeah. And they did it anyway because it was lining their pockets, right? Mm-hmm. And so Utah's over 18 years scheduled to get millions of dollars that have to go towards ameliorating the impacts of opioids. They're learning a little bit from the tobacco settlements, right? You can't just send the funds and trust the states to say, oh, we'll be smart. They start to this. peel away some and thousands and yeah, millions. Some bridges need to get built and yeah. some things, which, you know, that's the best we can hope to do is to learn from past mistakes. And okay. I do think that that the tobacco settlements and the mistakes there are taught quite a bit. But I chair the Utopia Task Force, which is actually um, housed in the Attorney General's office. Talk about some interesting spaces to try to exist, yeah. right? Um, and we put together a blueprint document for the state of Utah on our recommendations for how to wisely spend it, how to help break it down into areas like treatment, prevention, recovery support, some system investments. Um, and Working through the legislative body this last year, there's definitely an appetite to do things right, but there's not a leadership piece there. And so for me, I immediately would love to step into that leadership space and help the state be smart about this opioid spending because this is an unprecedented opportunity and this is a space that needs – we need to be sure – that we spend this money well. It's not okay not to. Well, Utah legislators have been – reluctant, avoidant in the past to get to the root causes of substance abuse, which comes to mental health. We delayed Medicaid expansion forever and left millions, if not a billion, on the table as a result because it doesn't seem that our elected representatives want to actually invest in the individual themselves with a social safety net. I think you're so right. And building up the pieces that kind of the wraparound services that help people be as well as they can possibly be. I mean, it is about housing. It is about mental health resources. It is about health care options. Job training. It is about jobs and education. It's about all of that. And there has been a reluctancy, which is interesting in this state because we are very much a, you know, pull up your bootstraps kind of thing. Uh We got to give folks the bootstraps and also show them how to do that. And also... Not everyone's born with bootstraps. Right? I'm getting so tired of all of that. And it's just, it's frustrating. It is. um, Like you said, it's a real opportunity to change, to make a shift in how we approach this and actually see a result because what we're doing now... We're not seeing the results. No. We're spending millions in homeless and housing and a pittance in substance abuse and mental health. Right. And maybe if we switch that a little bit. Well, and if we can just reframe it, which I think that, you know, talking about what has motivated me to be here, watching what we've been able to do with naloxone and opioid death prevention in the last seven years, it's a whole lot different climate out there than it was. You know, when we first started talking about reversing overdoses and saving these lives, and it was very hush-hush, and oh, that doesn't happen here. And now it's an everyday, it's an okay conversation to talk yeah. about your libraries and your police offices and your, I mean, it's it's okay. And that's what it's going to take is this kind of moving the ball down the field and shifting the culture around it. And I really do feel confident from the relationships that I've built. I, I, I mean, I've existed in our rural counties across the state over the last, you know, decade or so, 
working with their local leadership, working with their local law enforcement, working with their local substance abuse folks, I feel like I can walk into the legislature, and I'm not implying that it's easy, but but we have a workable relationship already where we have a common ground already. I just, my gut is that that's going to allow me to navigate some more challenging spaces with that kind of collaborative rather than contentious spirit. Let's talk about housing, Mm -hmm. which plays into whether or not someone can stabilize in their struggle with substance uh, disorder. But uh, the state seems to want to be able to tell the city and the county what they can and can't do with their zoning. What would you do as a state senator on the issue of housing affordability? Well, and that is not an easy fix, right? I mean, it's where we've already moved to go back is short of a recession is not happening, right? So I think on the state level, the key is we've got to take off some of the, I don't know what the cliched word is, but we've got to take away some of the barriers that are making it so that municipalities and cities can't enforce some of the things that will help. I know I had a a potential constituent reach out to me really concerned about the impacts of short-term rentals and ARBNBs. And this is a, a relatively small ask, but something that I think that could have a decent-sized impact. Mm -hmm. The legislature in 2019 put a restriction on cities, municipalities, counties even, cannot use social media or media as a way to identify. Yeah, there has to come a complaint from a citizen about it. And technically, Airbnb is not legal. If they're a hotel room, they're not paying the transient tax. Um, And they're not licensed. And they're not, I mean, all of the regulations that are in place, hopefully to keep things safe, hopefully to keep things above board, hopefully to generate the revenue that the cities and towns need. They can't even enforce their own regulations within cities. So I think there's some small asks like that. I also think there's going to need to be, um, there's really going to need to be a hard conversation about deeply affordable housing and what it means to say, we're going to provide housing for those who can't provide housing for themselves. We're not doing that with 480 square foot unit studios. We're not. I mean, a family can't exist in those. And a family, which needs a couple of bedrooms, heaven forbid they had three bedrooms and two baths, they can't afford to live what those are, with what those are. So I think public-private partnerships are going to have to become really critical. And I think the state needs to open its coffers, frankly. I mean, there is extra Record surplus, money. right? Yeah, record surplus. Open those coffers. Find ways to get, get it funded. Is that easy? No. Yeah, does the state want to go into the business of developing the housing, especially when a pretty significant number of lawmakers are, are realtors or developers or financiers? Existing in that space, absolutely. Yeah. But the part of housing that I think is it is a, it is the absolute basic like start, give people that roof over their head, give them that safety, give them that they can put their head down on a pillow at night and actually you know, take that breath that the day is done without having to be in terror that they're at risk all night. But it is truly just the start. You know, for the folks who are truly, you know, chronically homeless or in the longer term space there, the housing isn't enough. Mm. The, the wraparound services that are required, the mental health supports, the intensive case management, the access like we were talking about before to jobs, to education, to training, all of that. I mean, I think the housing, that that's an absolute, but it can't be just housing. As a pediatrician, also, mm-hmm. just a general health care yeah. provider in the ER. I'm guessing you see some of the trickle-down effects of us not being willing to pay Absolutely. for substance abuse, mental health, health care, et cetera. Not only in the kids that are the patients, but in their parents. Yeah. You know, if their parents aren't – if a, if a kid's parents aren't doing well, kids aren't doing well. 
I mean, yeah. that, that's just a given. We have been undergoing a, um, I wouldn't call it a study, but we've been trying to gather data at Primary Children's on, we don't even really have a good idea on what does housing insecurity look like? What does food insecurity look like in the populations that we see? And it is, you know, the ER is a last resort place for a lot of folks. So it kind of feels like it should be somewhere that would have some canary in the coal mine Mm -hmm. pieces. And none of this has been completely compiled or published yet, but there's indications that 40% of the population that we see in the ER is, is food and housing insecure. In, in the kiddos and the families and the homes that they go home to. 40%. Taking that information to your potential colleagues, should you win this seat, would be huge. It would be. And it's also, I hope, a space where there is some identifiable... I mean, you go with the hope that you talk to people's hearts and you speak to people's hearts, but what you ultimately hope for is that they something resonates and truly generates care, like truly makes people go, oh, you know what? I'm not okay with that. How can I improve on that or be a part of improvement on that? And that is truly my hope is that, you know, it, it, it resonates. I was thinking when we were coming in, one of the last like long interviews that you and I went through was in 2018 when the March for Our Lives kiddos were around and were in here and worse. It gives me goose flesh about it. They were so poignant and so passionate and, and there was a whole lot of talk. Yeah, we just had the latest crop of March for Our Lives student leaders on the show on Tuesday, and we had to say, and yet here we are again. And yet here we are again. And for those of us that exist in the medical and the trauma and the emergency department spaces, nothing has changed. The injured children continue to roll in, whether that's an accident or intentional or crossing everything that I can that, you know, a school shooting horrible scenario doesn't pass our way. But gun violence didn't just spring up again last week in Uvalde. This has been going on through the pandemic, prior to the pandemic. And my intention is truly, I, I will take every trauma physician that I work with, every trauma surgeon, every ER doc, every nurse, every social worker, every family that has had to wail in the halls with those losses, they're coming with me. If I'm elected, they are coming with me to speak to the hearts and minds of those legislators. You know, when we finish medical school, or even sometimes now when we start, there's something called a white coat ceremony where you take the the oath to first do no harm. And I would ask that of our legislators. What can you do to be doing no harm? Well, and the data is out now again um, that the number one cause of death for children in the United States of America is gun violence. It is. It's not infections. It's not cancer. It's not car accidents. It's gun violence. So... Much like we have done with addressing the opioid crisis, we have got to treat this as a public health crisis. We have got to get into this in multifactorial levels. We've got to look at storage. We've got to look at access. We've got to look at education. We've got to look at studies. I mean, I know people say, well, you can't study it. It's federal. You can't. That means you can't use federal funds to study it. That doesn't mean you can't study it. It means you can't use federal funds. All of those pieces, just like any public health crisis, need to be brought in. One of the things that the March for Our Lives kids said this week to us, um, that really hit home was, you know, the kids that were involved in Columbine, that generation, they're all voters now, and we're coming up behind them. And uh, if our current politicians won't get it done, we'll get rid of them and we'll do it. Yeah. 
That gives me some hope. Oh, yes, it does. And I think they mean it. I mm-hmm. don't think that's just words. I, I think and hope they mean it because um, it continues to not be okay. And it's also, you know, it's challenging. The grandstanding around it is also not okay. Mm-hmm. You know, the horror that comes out and then completely fades as our society does this. It's it's not all right. This We care enough to be that impacted. We need to continue to care enough. We've normalized the trauma of it. Yes, we have. Whether we're directly impacted or just yes, seeing it have. on the evening news. Yes, we have. Um, I do want to uh, hit a couple more. All right. Topics while we have yeah. you. You you have a plank on climate change and water impacts in Utah. It's 95 degrees out there today. Mm-hmm. It is. We had a lot of storms over the last bit, right? It felt like we were giving us a little extra winter, which I kept every day thinking to myself, this is, you know, January 312th or something when we get those <laughs> extra storms. But I was like, bring it more, bring it more. I think that our precious, pre- precious, priceless resource of water we, we've got to start viewing everything with a water lens. Every single bill, every single concept, every we have got to put what is the water lens on this. We've got to start looking at optimization, uh, both in the urban and rural spaces. Do you think they're sincere about pumping water from the Pacific? <sighs> I just don't even know how to respond to that because the altitude alone, not to mention the miles that it would come, like I just... I'm not sure if lawmakers were actually. <laughs> I know. I, I kind of don't know how to read Talking it about either. that in good faith, this notion of uh, supplementing the Great Salt Lake. But as the New York Times reported just recently, right. they uh, and the Great Salt Lake Collaborative is trying to shine a light on this as well. The complete drying up of the Great Salt Lake would be an environmental nuclear bomb. Absolutely. So what do you think as a state senator you can do about that? Uh, I think honestly, truly, the work that Jane Iwamoto did with water banking and with the concept of leasing and not these use it or lose it mm-hmm. kind of water rights that have existed, we're going to have to step into every space. And we're going to have to this, – this space, perhaps more than any other, is where those relationships with rural and urban are going to be crucial because there's – those of us that live up here on the Wasatch Front – it's no surprise to us to hear that the legislature doesn't always take care of Salt Lake City, right? There's there's very much a lot of pushback against the liberal capital. And there's folks all across the state in rural areas that fear that the urban center is simply trying to take away their water so that they can build up more, more, mm-hmm. more. We have got to find ways to help those relationships develop because this, this is going to take all hands on deck. This cannot mm-hmm. be a polarized area. Do I think there's solutions? Yeah, but it's it, we've been pretty good. I mean, Utah actually has some pretty progressive policies, and they've built good process in place. The Utah um, Water Task Force, I think, has done great work too. So for me, uh, the goal is to continue to keep those relationships up, to look at optimization, finding ways that we don't battle so much over it. Like, I get it. There's frustrations from folks about which particular crops are grown here in the state. Do you know how much folks in rural areas want to hear a city dweller tell them about what crop choice they have? I guess that'd be zero. Yeah, not much. So what are the ways that we actually get into the meat of it and all realize we don't exist without water? Like, none of us do. Where are the steps into that? Like, I can grab a bullhorn and yell with the rest of them. I just am not one that believes that actually results in change. Well, and lastly, uh, an area where I think you and the incumbent have a lot in common, and that would be LGBTQ rights and specifically transgender rights. You and I, that was our last conversation, actually, was about HB 11. 11. And you as a, a mom 
of a transgender child. So what is it yeah. that you think needs to happen or how you could influence civil rights in regard to transgender rights if you were elected? The absolute protection of our marginalized communities and marginalized community members has got to be a priority, is a hundred and I don't even know how many percent to say a priority for me. And I do worry about what is on the horizon as the leaked opinion of Roe v. Wade kind of hinted at. There are numerous other potential civil liberties protections that could be threatened. Plus the backlash of more to the right of the conservative aisle folks have shown themselves in our own state. They sure have. And, And I think the medical bills that are aiming to limit or eliminate medical care for our transgender youth, they're coming back this year. They're absolutely coming back this year. The last two years working with, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics and Equality Utah and the ACLU, we were able to have that kind of unified front that kept them back. One year it got to committee, last year it didn't even make it out of rules, the the medical suggestions. So it is, again, I think going to take education of folks. It's going to take true commitment and dedication to showing up to every space where you can be talking with them, whether that's a meeting, whether that's a town hall, whether that's one-on-one interactions with these legislators. Um, It is terrifying. I talked to the incumbent about this too. It feels like at the age I am now that we're having fights I thought were already settled from starting in the 80s uh, and moving forward as I came of age. And I just don't know what to do about that as an individual citizen. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you in the moment, and and I think this is going to become very clear, I want to say if, but I know it's when they overturn Roe, is that we have got to absolutely shore up the protections that we continue to have. Uh, It won't be long before they come after Plan B, is my prediction, after the trigger law that was put in in 2020, which essentially says as soon as Roe is overturned, Utah has a no abortion law. Um, The protections that are in place for people to be able to get medication abortions as opposed to procedural abortions. Potentially even contraception. Yeah, exactly, which Plan B is contraception. Although there are plenty of folks on the Hill that I guarantee you that think Plan B is an abortion pill, which it's not. Plan B is an over-the-counter way that folks essentially tell their body not to ovulate, not to release an egg, no egg, no conception. It's 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 an, a contraceptive. So the fact that we are potentially looking at Rosemary Lesser alone as a female physician on the Hill, former retired OBGYN, really, I, I really quite like and respect her. But to think of her being alone in that space in the post-Roe time, uh, it is truly my hope that I can get there and back her up um, more from the pediatric side, obviously, than from the OBGYN sides that I, because mm-hmm. I'm not there. But there's going to have to be education. And there's going to have to be true, honest dialogues about, you, you know what you're saying, right? You know what's happening. You know that the rape and incest pieces are real. You know that we actually do have pregnant 12-year-olds. Like you kn- they need to be educated if there's any hope of shoring up those last protections and moving back toward where we are now, which you're right. We're we're going back to the 60s. So in closing, yeah. let's get your closing pitch on why voters should elect you because it, this primary, it dictates who will represent the Senate in District 9. Yeah, it, it really does. Isn't it interesting? It's like wrapping up a whole election season into weeks instead of months, which has been a mad dash and has been 
like I said, I really have enjoyed being out there humaning and peopling again. My hope is that voters will look at the issues that mean the most to them and the results that they need and that we as a community need to get and look at the candidates and say, all right, who do I think is actually going to get things done? If you were to break down on principles and and views and positions. I don't think that Senator Kitchen and I probably vary a whole lot in our opinions of things. I think that um, I think he, uh, for example, introducing the bill to increase the age to purchase a gun to 21, right on. Like, let's get moving forward with more of these pieces. But I very much am committed to getting in there and following in the footsteps of people like Senator Janie Iwamoto introducing many bills, working on bills throughout the year, working on getting the relationships throughout the bill throughout the year and delivering results on those bills. I I am someone who can get results. We got probably two of the most liberal bills through our state legislature in the last 10 years, both syringe exchange and naloxone access. Those are pretty liberal bills. Zero votes against naloxone access, one vote against syringe exchange. So when the voters look at what they need done and who they think can get it done. I hope that they see in me someone who's committed to that and who's demonstrated that and who is in it for results. Results do matter. Well, Jen Plum, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Get your votes in. And that's Dr. Jen Plum, Democratic candidate to represent Senate District 9 here in the Beehive State. Ballots should be going out. I got mine. Did you get yours? Do you know where it is? Do you know you need to turn that in? primary is June 28th. My thanks to our guests this hour and you for plugging into your community with Radioactive. Questions, comments, suggestions, you can send me an email, radioactive at krcl.org. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening and have a great night.